house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. Headed for home? Uh, no, I am delayed a uh, long time. You are the kind of woman who can get any guy she wants. Why Victor Navorsky? That's something a guy like you could never understand. feel like you're just living in an airport. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast paying for the rights to the image of the Coca-Cola bear. And, you know, probably throwing some violence in there uh, against it. Um, every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations. But for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died and we are here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, Chris File, and I'm here as always with my heelless flight attendant, who is also a Napoleon historian, who also has her own QVC line, Joe Reed. Hello. Hello, friend. Hello, hello, hello. Um, so Karkoja. before we got on mic, we kind of realized that this month we've accidentally stumbled into an accidental month-long theme on major directors and bad dialects. Yeah. Yeah, how did we do how how did we do that? And yet here we are because I, I mean there's maybe not a bad dialect in flawless, but you could say Philip Seymour Hoffman is doing gay voice. If that yes, counts. I think he does a good job. And also, like <laughs> gay, kind of. There's v- something very specific about the voice that he is doing in that film. I don't know. There, I don't know if it's geographically precise, but yet some of these other accents are also not geographically precise. So who knows? I, I think they've maybe gotten less and less geographically precise. Yeah. To the point um, where this week we're just like we made up a place for for Tom quite Hanks literally to be from. it has gotten so off the map of being geopolitically precise that it is just in the ethos yeah. of fake country. But yeah, Joseph um, Gordon Levitt was uh, Frenchy French, and uh, if you if you recall, Robert Downey Jr. was crikey Aus- Australian, mate. Yes, and now we are going to the land. Of Krakosia with uh, Mr. Thomas Hanks. Sure, we are. We absolutely are. Um, yeah, the terminal. We, I mean, we don't have a ton of excuses to do Spielberg within the parameters that we have set for ourselves on this podcast because even when it doesn't really go right for him, there's usually an element or two therein. We will definitely get into the Oscar history of Spielberg. Yes, I mean, in quite the Oscar history, it is. Yeah, I mean, this is a very Oscar-y collection of talent, right? It's Mm -hmm. Spielberg, it's Hanks, who was like, you know, 
Mr. Oscar certainly was there for a while. Catherine Zeta-Jones is right on the back of her supporting actress win only two years mm-hmm. prior to this. Uh, Tucci hadn't been nominated yet, but he would... <laughs> it's the so... Tucci. It's so, so, so tragic whenever we talk about Stanley Tucci in the Oscars when we realize that his only Oscar nomination is for The Lovely Bones. Perhaps the only role in his filmography that I like less than the role he plays in Terminal. Uh, it's Yeah, this movie's fine. This is like him still in like character actor territory where he's basically playing a bureaucrat. He's probably the second lead of the movie... Yeah, in terms of prominence to the story and screen time, yeah, absolutely. I don't dislike the performance. It is not the flavor of Stanley Tucci that I most want to see. If I'm going to see a Stanley Tucci performance, this sort of unambiguous, from the jump, like, bureaucratic villain, like, I don't know. I don't need it. I mean, if I'm going to watch a Stanley Tucci performance, I'm going to want to watch him making what was it a negroni um in his home during quarantine and calling me poor for the type of vermouth that i use (laughs) Um, i mean yeah that's the vibe you want which is like um queer adjacent or like you know i mean even when he's playing like in the best stucci performances even when he's playing like avowedly heterosexual, like in like Easy A, right? Where it's him and Patty Clarkson as Emma Stone's parents. There is something sort of, I don't know, like he's absolutely the most sophisticated him. heterosexual man. Yeah, we do love yes. him. We just we, yes. we we love him, and it's hard to love him in the character that he plays in this film. Yeah, um. I mean, everything's kind of cartoonish in this movie, so it's like, of course, he has to. He's like maybe even the most grounded performance in the movie, and that he's not really playing something like that makes this into a fairy tale or right, uh, right. Like he's not a full mustache twirling villain, but he's yeah. Dreadful, there are dreadful, dreadful bureaucrat. There are there are issues of you mentioned fairy tale and I think that's right in that like a lot of this movie can be sort of just like be chalked up to like well it's a fairy tale and yet I think the movie has tone issues that sort of aren't fully papered over mm-hmm. by that and I mean we'll get in, we'll get into it when we get on the other side of uh, the plot description but. This is sort of part of a segment of Spielberg's career that feels very, it's a very interesting little corner of his career, Mm -hmm. but it like, it straddles 9-11 in a really interesting way. I would say going from AI in 2001, which was made before 9-11, obviously, to the War of the Worlds in Munich uh, double in 2005. This this War of the Worlds and Munich kind of make like Spielberg's 9-11 trio of movies. Um, And they're all so kind of widely, wildly different. Um, And this one feels like the least explicit of the three that it is about, like what our culture was at the time. 
but at maybe... the same time is so like mired in it in a way that it's like we want to make people feel good about all of that's these the horrible thing. things in the world and that's like that's the thing about the fairy tale of this movie is that like even the idea of that and putting like that tone in this context like even today feels um maybe not outright inappropriate but it's like well, why do you want to do that like uh, just trying to like think realistically about Tom Hanks's character. It's like, why would you want to have like that type of horrible circumstance and make that into a fairy tale? And right. it, like, it's, it's loosely based on uh, a real man who was uh, caught at Charles de Gaulle for many, many years. Um, and, many like, years, like almost 20 years. Tragic. That story. That yeah. story. Yeah. So it was an Iranian man who was traveling to London, I believe, and uh, was ended up um, sort of as Tom Hanks's character in the terminal is sort of stuck at, in this case, it was Charles de Gaulle airport in Paris Mm -hmm. because his papers had gone missing. And there was some disagreement over whether the papers had gone missing or whether he had sent him ahead to Belgium. And um, they, but for whatever reason, he didn't have his papers. And this was like an 18 year protracted series of, legal wranglings and you know they were gonna let him go to belgium but he didn't want to go to belgium he wanted to go to london and he wanted to have a certain name on his forms and so it's there was you know refugee status from iran that was sort of in question and there was a lot of kind of moving parts to it and some parts of it seemed like he was sort of digging his heels in in a way that felt that from reading the description of it, and, like, I obviously didn't, like, go in-depth on this or anything, but, like, it seemed like there might have been sort of, like, some mental illness at play, mm-hmm. and whether, you know, I mean, to to stay in an airport terminal for 18 years, in not entirely of his own wanting, but, like, certainly there were outs that he didn't take. Mm-hmm. And, but and but also, it's just, like, it's all wrapped up in immigration and refugee status and like all these things that are like actually really pertinent issues today and that's why Mm -hmm. it's it's really from a 2020 perspective watching the terminal jarring to watch immigration issues be treated in this sort of like lighthearted as you say fairy tale way more gauche today than it did at the time and at the time it was still like what are you doing here um but I think it's interesting when you mention the the Terminal War of the Worlds in Munich as this kind of like nine eleven triptych, which like not one of them deals with the events of nine eleven specifically, mm-hmm. but I think they deal with different aspects of kind of the national mood in and around it. Whereas like the Terminal feels like dealing, it's dealing with a lot of the what what has changed about America in this, like, very quick aftermath, where, like, what was the biggest change that most Americans saw after 9-11? It was the way in which air travel was impacted, right? It became Mm -hmm. a much more sort of fraught experience. And a lot of the terminal, a lot of the terminal feels like almost like these childish, not child childlike games of what if, and one of them is, like, what if we could make air travel lighthearted again? You know what I mean? And it feels yeah. very sort of like Spielbergy in the way that sometimes the word Spielbergy is used to connote um childlike 
wonder you know what i mean that kind of thing mm-hmm. and it felt like a very spielberg take on like what if we could make this one thing that has become really scary post 9-11 into something more lighthearted and then in war of the worlds which i think is his most effective statement on 9-11 which is we mm-hmm. are going to evoke- i mean it directly like kind of lifts 9-11 imagery right like the footage that we've seen all along and like morphs it into this like science fiction horror like image that's really upsetting war of the worlds really sets out to and i think is really effective at conveying the the mood and the terror of like of that moment Mm -hmm. on a sci-fi scale and then munich deals with it sort of uh tangentially but um, and then sort of like very directly at the end, but in this yeah, kind of geopolitical way that like plays out in a lot of like political philosophies and I yes. think just like the political ramifications and like what we were thinking as we were settling into yeah um, the mid 2000s. But the terminal of the three movies, the terminal is my least favorite of them. And I think, I think because of the the angle that it takes on 9-11, it's probably the least effective at commenting on 9-11. And if that was sort of like his like first crack at it or whatever, it feels almost like um and I've never seen come from away, so I don't know, but like in concept, it seems like that kind of a thing of like, what if the aftermath of 9-11 made people from all sort of like areas and walks of life sort of forced to come together in this microcosm and wouldn't that be kind of um a lovely balm on what has happened and the terminal does try and create this kind of this thing you see in movies a lot where it's this ragtag little ecosystem of all these different kinds of people. And you got Chai McBride and Diego Luna and Zoe Saldana and the cast is kind of wonderful. I do actually really like the um the ensemble of this movie. It's a good ensemble, but it's it's this kind of thing that that kind of uh eclectic ecosystem thing is sometimes hard for me to think that it's done right sometimes it just feels very kind of artificial it felt it reminded me a lot of definitely lady in the water lady in the water did that too where it's (laughs) do you know what i mean like lady in the water was worse but No, 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 no i mean i like lady in the water um uh I would prefer that type of, like, ragtag ensemble. I mean, it takes it to some, like, very silly places. Like, Zoe Saldana and Diego Luna, like, have, like, a love story where they're flirting, but then they eventually get married at the airport. I don't know whom among us wants to get married at work. Wants to get married at work, but also, like, they get engaged after seemingly never interacting outside of the airport, ever. Yeah. Like, that's weird in a way that I don't think is cute. Like, I don't think it's bad. But It's like, like the part of Spielberg where, like, he just wants to make Capra movies, but it's like yeah. he got stoned and, like, misunderstood <laughs> everything about how Capra movies work. Um, this movie overestimates its own sense of whimsy a lot. I think it yes. does it in the romance between Hanks and Catherine Zeta-Jones' characters. I think it does it in the the 
conclusion where, and I keep saying Pagoda from the Royal Tenenbaums because I can't remember that actor's Umar name. Priyana. I, thank you. Um, where he s- steps in front of this United jetliner that's taxiing down the runway. And it's, of course, this, like, really arresting image of this, like, giant plane stopping just short of this, like, short little man on the tarmac. But if you, like, prod at that moment for, like, even a second, you're just like, oh, so this immigrant is sacrificing this entire American life that he's made for himself over years and years. And probably go back to his home country and be imprisoned or executed. He left there for a frickin' reason. Also that Victor Navorsky can have one day in New York seeking jazz artifacts. Like, it's the whimsy of that moment, and it is sold as whimsical, even when, like, the armed, uh, whatever, immigration police are all pointing automatic weapons at this guy. And he, like, goes, like, do you have an appointment? Because that's his, like, jokey line from earlier. Like, that is such a miscalculation by such a wide margin that it, like, it really made me question Spielberg's handle on the tone of the whole movie. I would say the politics of this movie do not uh, align with the politics of Spielberg's films, like surrounding this film. Right. Um, it, it. I wonder. I don't. I guess I wonder where Spielberg's like in with this material was. Like, why was Spielberg compelled to make this movie? I feel like it feels right. like maybe the least Spielberg film that I can recall in his filmography. Like the. The touchstones are there, but, like, as you're watching the movie, the sense of, like, scale, the sense of control over the material, like, the sense of, like, palpable emotion, it's all completely off. Here's my theory. One of the, one of the things we know about Steven Spielberg as a director, but most also as a producer, is that, like, he will sign on to produce a lot of projects. He's got like a billion things in the hopper. When is he going to end up making this movie? When is he going to end up making that movie? And a big part of that is that he is arguably the most powerful creative decision maker in Hollywood. Let's say Mm -hmm. anything he could want to make. He can, he has the resources. He has the cloud. He has the everything. And for that reason, I think Steven Spielberg is a kind of guy who will read a story and be like, I should make a movie about that. And he'll hear about a thing and be like, I should make a movie about that. And that's why his IMDb page is littered with like announced projects of like, mm-hmm. like whatever, 25 announced projects that he's, you know, not quite working on yet. And, and I think like for 576 producer credits. Right. And I think for whatever reason, he read this story about this Iranian man at Charles de Gaulle and kind of, I mean, not unreasonably thought that would make a really great movie because it's such an interesting story. It's such an unusual story. And in the wake of 9-11... Oh, 9-11. A story that would take on even more sort of interesting implications. And so he Mm -hmm. thought, I should make that movie. And for whatever reason, this one made its way through the pipeline quicker than most. And and, And so like that, and then so we end up with this movie that... You're right. Like you're sort of <laughs> you're sort of scratching your head as to how this movie came out in the midst of all these other movies that he's making. But I do feel like that's my best shot at. I also feel like that's how he ends up making something like Ready Player One. 
right? Ready like, Player One, though, probably wouldn't have gotten made if he wasn't directing it because right. of all of the like rights issues for right. all of those characters and all of those IP mentions that go into that movie. Yeah, like nobody's gonna sign off on it for probably. I would assume a lower like fee than what like use of those characters would be. Yeah, if it's not Steven Spielberg at the yeah. head. Yeah, and I think he was just compelled to make that god awful movie. But also, the Terminal, you could say the same thing about because what's the one really notable thing about the production of the terminal which is he had to create basically an entire airport wing uh from which you know, is incredibly impressive i think it's the yes. most impressive thing about the movie because like you could watch that movie and think the entire thing was truly shot in an airport and then you tell someone no that was a set and yep. like your mind kind of doesn't wrap around that it really type of sh- contemporary design it really should have gotten an art directing nomination it did get nominated by the art director's so guild just um, for how convincing it is yeah um it's not but like it's not always that like bigger equals more impressive but like in this case it does and also it's weird that the oscars who always go for most when they mean best didn't mm-hmm. go for this but at contemporary design, they often right. don't yes, it's true. go for it. Um, right. Although, was this the year that they nominated... No, Marie Antoinette is 05, right? Uh, yes. Were they nominated Marie Antoinette for uh, for art direction? And everybody and was like, was because... Shot. Just because yeah. they shot it at Versailles, and like, okay, well, like Versailles is real impressive, but like, yeah, but, but art direction is also, you I, know, like I what agree. You're bringing in. I'm sure I they're agree. bringing in sofas and, of course, you know. but I, but I just remember that being like a line of thinking at the time, which was just sort of just like, you know, you're sort of you're starting at you know third base instead of starting at first base when like when you're dealing with Versailles, you know, you're you've got a bit true. of. A I mean, the same is true for the favorite. They shot that on a location and yeah. then brought in like. All of the furniture, they like things like canes that people carry around is right. like part of art direction, you know, props. Right. And, yeah. Um, here's one thing I'll say before we get into the 60 second plot description that like makes everything about the movie make sense and all of its problems, except for Steven Spielberg's participation. This I do not understand. It's three different credited writers yeah. on the script and story for the movie, but in like a different combination. So it's Sasha Gervasi, Jeff Nathanson get the screenplay credit. Right. Story credit goes to Sasha Gervasi and Andrew Nichol. Gattaca guy. Um, right. I love Gattaca. So it's like, it feels like this has been passed off to so many different hands, like changing what the actual script is and not all together. So it feels like something that had been kicking around for a while in different yeah. versions. Yeah, Andrew Nichol is interesting because Andrew Nichol is also a writer who um, occasionally directs his own scripts, and although not always to um, good effect, I, uh, I believe he was. Simone, I don't know what in time you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, um, Sasha Javrasi is an interesting sort of element of this because he's the least sort of accomplished of all this, especially at this time, the only feature film he had uh, written was something called The Big Tease that was a 1999 film starring Craig Ferguson, um, like well before Craig Ferguson got even the late night hosting gig on CBS. And then after The Terminal, he writes and directs, or maybe he doesn't write, he writes, he directs that film 
Anvil, the story of Anvil, the 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 yeah, mock sure. documentary about the rock band or whatever. Um, but that like is that doesn't seem to have any kind of connection to the terminal. He's a writer on a film called Henry's Crime with Keanu Reeves and Vera Farmiga that filmed in Buffalo that I've still never seen, weirdly. Um, and then in 2012, he directs our favorite from the IMDb game, Hitchcock, the Anthony Hopkins, Helen Mirren Hitchcock film. That, like, the I don't, I, I have such a hard time sort of following that through line. And yet he seems to be with the one with a story and screenplay credit that feels like he's got most authorship on it. And then it feels like Jeff Nathanson, who had written the screenplay for Catch Me If You Can just prior to uh-huh. this film. Was the guy Might that Spielberg like brought on, on set or did like the final polish? Right, something. right. Spiel- he's Spielberg's guy. Spielberg brings him in, I imagine, and just sort of just like, well, you know, give me the finished product on this. But yeah, it's an odd little journey, and yet, like the story was that like Spielberg was the one who saw this man's true life story and bought the rights to it. So like clearly, this was not a project. A, this was not a script that was brought to Spielberg. This was something that Spielberg had sort of commissioned. Mm-hmm. so i don't know it's interesting very interesting we will continue to get into it but we're going to do the 60 second plot description once again we are here to talk about the terminal or as maybe we should call it since this is our month of dialects uh, the, the, the terminal um <laughs> uh directed by steven spielberg starring one mr tom hanks and then a large ensemble that includes Catherine zeta jones stanley tucci chai mcbride diego luna zoe saldana kumar payana barry shabaka henley my favorite of ali's dad's friends in the newest stars born uh the movie opened uh june 18th 2004 a summer spielberg movie and uh, yeah, that's the terminal. Joseph, are you ready to give a 60 second plot description? Yeah, ready to go. All right. Your 60 second plot description for Steven Spielberg's The Terminal starts now. All right. Tom Hanks plays Victor Navorsky, a traveler from fictional Eastern European Krakosia who flies into New York and learns that while he was in the air, a coup in his home nation means that he currently has no nation and thus can't be allowed to either enter the United States or fly back home. So the only place he can legally reside is the international terminal at fake JFK airport. While making daily feudal attempts to get his papers stamped, Victor also makes himself at home in the terminal for like months. He befriends an eclectic bunch of airport employees and becomes something of a micro level celebrity within the ecosystem of the airport. This is all happening under the eye of a sneer Stanley Tucci wants Victor out of his airport because he's fucking up his chance at a promotion so he keeps trying to get Victor to break the law and enter the US illegally so he'll get arrested and also Victor meets and falls in love with a pretty and sad flight attendant played by Catherine Zeta-Jones who is inexplicably a Napoleon buff in the end the coup in Krakosia ends and CZJ's crappy married boyfriend gets Victor a one day visa so we can go into the city and get an autograph from a jazz man as part of an emotional stakes razor subplot that gets introduced far too late into the film to possibly matter Tucci tries to get Victor to go back to Krakosia he blackmails him by threatening his friends and and pagoda stands in front of a a jetliner yeah yeah Yeah. and then uh yeah he go gets a an autograph in a hotel lobby at the ramada wherever the fuck this ramada is supposed to be in new york by the way but like they cut to him like in a cab leaving the ramada and then like all of a sudden he's in the middle of Times square which is one of the two most ludicrous cuts in this movie the other one is when he walks out of the front doors of the airport and like the new york city skyline is reflected in the glass of the 
of the front doors of this airport. And I'm like, I'm not sure what airport you think you're at, sir. But like, there is... The least distinct visual uh, film ever shot by uh, Janusz Kaminski. I could not believe. (laughs) Well, Um, like, this really does have the Spielberg all-star team, right? Where it's like, it's Janusz Kaminski doing the cinematography. It's, of course, a John Williams score. Like the worst John Williams score. One of my least favorite John Williams scores ever. My literal note as I'm uh, writing down my notes last night... I just go, I despise this Hootie Tootie score so much because it is so, it's so tootily. I hate it. It's just, ugh, it's so bad. Might as well have been like a James Newton Howard or something. Listen, we, James okay, Newton Howard's done Can we take it back to him driving through Times Square? Yes. At the I end. always, I do love Times Square scenes in movies, even though Times Square is a cesspool because it had all of the Broadway. I do the same thing. There. So of course my eye goes to them. There's a... There's a billboard for Taboo. Yep. I saw Taboo on Broadway. Oh, nice. I did that, you know, legend of uh, Broadway bombs. I noticed that sign, that uh, the billboard for Taboo as well. I also noticed the Mamma Mia billboard, the very recognizable uh, Mamma Mia poster. A Wonderful Town billboard. Is that what that was? Wonderful Town? Okay. Yes, there's Wonderful Town on there, which had... Donna Murphy and Jennifer Westfeldt in it, and I saw them. They were great. Was that the um, one? There was a poster that looked plausibly like the Step Brothers poster, but obviously it couldn't have been because Step Brothers isn't for another four years. But um, right. <laughs> I couldn't quite tell what that was because it like it pans up from Times Square way too quickly. But that always reminds me of one of my favorite scenes in movies is the very end of Closer when Natalie Portman goes sort of strutting into New York and disappears among the crowd, and there's like it like in the center of the frame for a good 20 seconds is the thoroughly modern Millie. Um, yes. The, the marquee. marquee yeah. Um, marquee. <laughs> yeah. The marquee um, at the marquee. It's yeah. the same part of my brain that if you post a photo online of your home and I can see your bookshelves, yep. I'm going to zoom in and see what books you have on your shelf or for like the, what DVDs you have. For the longest time, back when like single service tumblers was, was a thing, obviously like this, whole podcast arose from a single service tumbler so like um but one of i always would have like a bunch of random ideas that i never had the time or you know whatever uh motivation to do but i always <laughs> wanted to do a tumbler on shots in movies of movie marquees that show uh whatever like whatever the titles of movies were playing at the time which are always a a really great time capsule of just movie theaters in general, but also mm-hmm. like it really helps you place the movies like when that, that film is taking place in a really uh-huh. cool way. Um, famously, that's how I figured out the twist in remember me before uh, it ended <laughs> was that it was taking place the same year as American Psycho. pie two, which I found very strange. Speaking of nine 11 movies. Oh, nine 11. Absolutely insane. I bring up the Broadway billboards though, because you missed the most important detail of the movie, which is when Victor is being first interrogated by the Tooch and he shows him like what his, <laughs> he's like, I need a cab. I need to go to a Ramada Inn. I'm going to see cats on Broadway. Stanley Tooch, he's like, cats is closed. <laughs> the funny thing about that is because that's the scene also where Stanley Tucci tells him that while he was in the air, there was a coup in Krakosia and his country is no more. Um, which, by the way, put a pin in that because we'll get to in a second. Um, but it, he makes
makes it sound like cats also closed while Victor was in the air, which is funny because, like, I'm pretty sure cats closed, like, several years before that. Right, um, right. Cats, I believe, closed before 9-11. I think, yeah, cats closed, yes, I think that's right. Because Les Mis was very close to breaking the, like, longest running ever um, during 9-11. I see, I see. But I thought that was kind of funny. It was just like, well, while you were in the air, your country had a coup and doesn't exist anymore. And also, perhaps even worse, cats closed. (laughs) No more. No more cats. Because wasn't cats also at the Winter Garden and didn't like... Yes, it was. That's the Mamma Mia theater. So that's where Mamma Mia is at the the point of this. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Very recent Mamma Mia. I love that in an episode for The Terminal, we were able to bring up both cats and Mamma Mia. I know, and we'll get into more Broadway uh, when we talk about Catherine Zeta-Jones, because we're going to talk about her Tony win. Okay, so I want to talk, like, not to nitpick this movie to death. I don't want to do, like... Any way that you could nitpick this movie, though, is pretty low-hanging fruit. I don't want to do cinema sins on this, but... No. I do feel like there are certain movies where the suspension of disbelief becomes impossible because simple things could have cut the Gordian knot of this movie, right? Where it's just like, mm-hmm. it... it strains credibility to me that they never bring in a translator to talk to Victor ever. It, yeah, that's ever. so com- in JFK there is no one in the entire airport that speaks Bulgarian, which is there, the language that Hanks is speaking. That's the thing. And there's like there's even a scene later on where they make a big deal about they bring in Victor to translate Russian for this agitated traveler and they say are Russian translators in Newark. And it's like, okay, so you have translators that are at most as far as Newark, they could get here away. in you like can get them on a speakerphone. Right. And so, like, the idea that we have to go through all of these, like, lost-in-translation moments with Victor that are incredibly stressful to watch and whatever, and it's just, like, I get that, like, that's the premise of the movie, but if the premise of your movie hinges on something that is, like, so strains credibility, then maybe you have to tinker with the premise of your movie a bit. The fact that all—sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say, like, I think the movie kind of decides fairly early that, like, oh, well, Victor will just adapt and learn English that much, so we don't have to solve this problem for the movie. Like, that's its lame way out. Sure. That problem. But, like, it's still a problem in the early goings of the movie. Also... Yeah, and it establishes Victor in these really cartoony terms that kind of set the whole movie off on the wrong path. Right. There's, of course, like plenty of jokes about how he says a thing and it sounds like another thing. Diego Luna says, thinks he's saying eat shit, eat shit instead of he cheat. But like the fact that the movie makes this very clear decision that everything happening in the movie is going to be completely isolated from the outside world. And the only things that happen in the movie happen within not only just this airport, but within this terminal. And like, okay, but again, it's so unbelievable that there would not be any kind of external pressures or communications coming. There's this been like... Or a diplomat that's at least made aware. That's the thing. Yeah. There is... This is a big enough international story, the Krakosia story, that it's like on CNN, on the televisions constantly. 
Like, it would not take very long for the State Department or something to become to aware. there's a Caucasian citizen right. stuck in right. an airport. And, like, the news would find out about this. Like, the big part about the real-life story of the Iranian man was that, like, he was constantly being interviewed by members of the press because it's such an interesting story. And it mm-hmm. just, it's, and again... He wants to make it a fairy tale. The fairy tale is very self-enclosed, right? But also, like, if you're going to make this story as much about, like, an international incident that you have created, it just doesn't make any sense that there's Mm -hmm. no external pressures or no external communications at all in this movie. I think and it's because it's trying to create a scenario where there wouldn't be some type of external involvement so that it can keep this whole fairy tale scenario because like if you're trying to have this concept of this man locked in an airport not in his own country like there's other scenarios you could come up with like even ones in countries that exist um right i just yeah it's like it feels like that is a mistake made on the part of trying to maintain this tone of the movie and not have it be so grim to the point where it's like the um the guy with the pills who speaks russian and victor ends up helping out with like that scene is so upsetting it's so upsetting where yeah he's he has these pills that he's trying to get to his father in canada and he ends up like holding a knife to his own throat while it becomes this very uh, intense situation with airport security victor jumps in and like helps out and does interference for them basically so that they can talk again why is there somebody that doesn't speak russian at this airport right i, I also love that, that like their one russian translator in all of jfk airport like are you actually kidding me right um yeah. And it's just this really upsetting scenario where eventually Victor communicates, say it's for your goat so that you don't, right. you know, so you can go help your dad. Um, I don't know. It's it's another, it's sort of, so much of what happens in this movie, I can feel the screenwriteriness of it that just sort of like, like, and that scene was just like, well, we need a scenario where Victor and and Dixon, the, the Tucci character, can face off. They need to, like, come up mm-hmm. with X number of occasions where that relationship, like, ratchets up the adversarialness, right? And, like, that's sort of the most, where uh, Dixon brings in Victor to help in this situation, and then they end up having this sort of, like, tense face-off, battle of wills kind of a thing. And it's just like, okay, but, like, that is a function in your story arc, but you have to, like, make it not only make sense, but as you said, just, like, it's so hard to watch and stressful. And I think the emotional stakes of that, like, sort of really kind of... um fly off the charts. The other thing that I thought was like unforgivably screenwritery was making the Catherine Zeta-Jones character a Napoleon buff. Like that <laughs> was such a like we need to give her a quirk or a quality and it's just like also, you might as well Napoleon buff after reading one book on Napoleon. Right. Um but you might as well have made her like really into Rubik's cubes or like it's also the fact that like they make Zoe Saldana's character a Trekkie so that she and Diego Luna have like this weird sort of like dorky bond or whatever. And it's just like 
nothing seems organic about these characters no. like at all like Catherine zeta jones character the movie's lucky that it has good performers in these because like yeah. if there's anything charming or made to make it believable it's always it's in the performances i think that especially of tom hanks like the ludicrous final reveal of why he was even traveling to which comes City. so late in the movie far too late for you to uh, to for you to establish any kind of emotional stakes at all and like it really it's i don't understand it i don't understand why i think it comes it's that either late. because it's so like not seemingly to us in the audience not worth the effort that he and the ordeal that he has to go through um, it also assumes that the audience was spending far more time obsessing over what was in the fucking planners can than we were. Like, yeah. <laughs> they keep, like, Tucci brings that up when he talks to uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones when he sort of pulls her aside and gives her the skinny on who Victor really is, where he's just like, do you know he walks around with a can of peanuts? Why do you think that is? And it's like, I personally wasn't stressing about it. I don't know about anybody else but the movie really treats it as this sort of like pulp fiction briefcase of a thing of just like what's the MacGuffin in the planters can and it's like I, I don't care the movie doesn't care up until the point that it does and all of a sudden now it becomes this like Rosetta Stone unlocking everything about Victor and it's like does it <laughs> though but like to my earlier point like the only thing that makes that completely not a table flipping moment in this movie is Tom Hanks's performance because he at least kind of grounds it in some type of emotional truth that maybe the movie is not selling, but the performance is selling. If that makes any sense. Like I do think Tom Hanks is pretty decent in this movie. That is very silly. I think you're right in that Hanks sells that moment in the script as best he can. I don't like the only one who can save that moment from completely ruining an already not great movie i don't love this hanks performance and i don't think it's that he's bringing it down i think it's just that he's unable to elevate it to a point where i need it to be elevated to because it's coming from such a like you know such an un interesting i don't know there's just like whatever i don't like about this movie hanks is unable to to elevate to it transcend. to a point where I do like sure. it. And sometimes he just seems like he's being too antic-y. Like, I know that, like, that's what the movie is asking him. But, like, all these times where he's, like, just sort of, like, l- running through the airport and, like, trying to, I don't know, it's just... I guess to qualify what I'm saying is, like, there's something about the movie that is oddly palatable, and I think that that comes purely out of the performances in the movie. That's yeah, not Catherine Zeta-Jones's performance. <laughs> yeah, I th- I find that a lot in the um the D- the Diego Luna Zoe Saldana subplot, which I mm-hmm. like on paper is insufferable and weird, and I hate these relationships where like the male character decides that this girl is going to be his, and he's going to have to do whatever it takes to get her, and it's just a matter of time, and he's just going to like, and there's not like there's not a whole lot of. It's not like she's telling him no, no, no. So it's like, it's not creepy like that. But it's still like, on paper, it's not my favorite kind of a of a romance. If, the, if this whole scenario for them was that they met on eHarmony this way, sure. it would not be creepy. But sure. because they have this go-between in Victor. Right, where it's this like quasi-Cyrano kind of a thing where like Diego yeah. Luna is like having Hanks sort of flirt with her on his behalf and whatever. And it's like, and yet... 
because it's Diego Luna, who I find adorable as a box of kittens, and Zoe Saldana, who is like always like brings a uh, a credulity that doesn't really seem earned to that performance, but like it's it it just barely works for me on a charm level even though again as a story element i hate it mm-hmm. so i don't know yeah it's a it's a very it's a very interesting cast for again being this very sort of you know ragtag group of misfits i don't know the one thing i wanted to throttle for this movie we can also have the argument that this takes place at jfk and jfk is awful and laguardia is fine everybody hates laguardia but jfk is always the one with the problems but this movie also is like aren't airports great like well okay great and like airports are the hell of my being if hell exists and i go there it will be an airport like i all right all right i've got a few things to say about this I hate air I hate air travel. I hate almost everything about air travel. I mostly when I do fly, I f- will fly um and this is not an endorsement or an advertisement or whatever, but I'll fly JetBlue because it's the one that flies to Buffalo most frequently and whatever. I also am like a rewards member there, so if like so if I ever get like a free flight, it's from them. Whatever. The JetBlue terminal in JFK is actually really nice. It's fine. It makes me the least stressed of any kind of flying situation. So, like, I'm cool with it. LaGuardia, I'm sorry to say, earns its reputation for being a dump. Although, the renovations that were happening more recently, the last time I flew out of LaGuardia, it seemed really nice. Anyway. I am in and out of LaGuardia without, without like, problem every time. Okay. I think, I think your... Um, priority of an airport. If your priority of an airport is getting out of it quickly, then yeah, I see why you like LaGuardia better. That's right. Because you do have to kind of traverse a series of football field length transoms to get to the exit of JFK. I get it. I do get that. But anyway, the movie, again, sorry. I was going to say what it did make me miss about airports is food courts. Yes. This like well, weirdly felt like the most COVID movie I've seen in all of quarantine <laughs> where I'm like, this is kind of what this feels like, but also is a little bit of a fantasy because I would like to be able to have trash pizza and a, a fountain Coke at any given minute. You are approach you're you're absolutely approaching my point. Which it which it's also a weird time capsule movie because he pays seventy four cents for a burger at Burger King and I know. Can you imagine? No. Even at the it's time, like even at the time, that was now. wildly ludicrous. Anyway, okay. So, In an airport at that. <laughs> that would have been a $50 hamburger. Exactly. But my point is that a lot of the the conception of this movie, and again, this is sort of like a why it seems so screenwritery to me, um, it seems to very obviously come from this series of like, childlike what if questions of just like what if or like i mean whatever like what if a country ceased to exist while someone was traveling what would that what would sort of like happen there right where it's just sort of like like noodle on that one for a while but the other thing that that i do find which is why i mentioned childlike is this idea of like what would it be like to live at the mall and like that's what the appeal (laughs) of living at this, but it's also a thing that you would wonder if you're like 10 years old. And that's why there are multiple, by the way, movies that kind of spin around the idea of like, 
There's so much at the mall. You really could kind of live there. Weirdly, Dawn of the Dead is like that, uh, where the heart is, where um, Natalie Portman goes and lives in the Walmart is about that, and and the Terminal. So, like, if you ever want to have a weird-ass triple feature, do Dawn of the Dead and Where the Heart Is and the Terminal, because all of those movies are about what would it be like to live at the mall. And it's a thing that I think a lot of kids wonder, because, like, everything's at the mall. You have, it's it's one of those things where it's just like, everything's become, there's so much there that like, there are beds there, there is food there, there is whatever. And you, you know, how long could you go living at the mall? And I think that's a big part of the weird fascination with that man's story was he lived in an airport terminal for 18 years because you kind of can. Yeah. I don't know. I would be, I, I, Victor takes this too well. Yes, he does. In my vision. He never he really like, never complains. He never really chafes at the idea of of the limitations of living within the airport terminal. You're right. Yeah. When like they see the one scene very early where he's like bathing in the restrooms where like splashing water from the sink or whatever, and like I'm not sure we ever get to the part where we find out how he squares that circle. Like, how does he continue to bathe? Does he just, like, forever splash water on his pits from the from the sink? Like, does he ever have, like, a proper shower in the months and months that he's in this terminal? Where could... Where, like, do, do the employees have, like, a lounge somewhere where they could, or like... Or a locker room. Or a gym? Is there a gym somewhere? Like, I genuinely don't know. But, like, they never really address that. They figure out how he eats and how he makes money and whatnot. He weirdly, like, gets employed by a construction crew. Perhaps the most bizarre sort of, like, corner of this movie where Possibly he, like... Possibly the most believable. <laughs> I guess. But, like, it's just deeply... Deeply weird. Everything that the movie thinks is charming really has a factual undercurrent <laughs> of upsettingness. Yeah. I used a bunch of words there that don't really belong together. <laughs> I loved it. I love it, though. Um, So, yeah, it's... In terms of Oscar buzz, obviously Spielberg is, like, the top of that list of directors where everything he does has Oscar buzz. Because... Everything he does is A, major, and B, nine times out of ten, will get nominated for some kind of Oscars, whatever. This is, of course, the man... More than nine times out of ten, probably. Yeah, 9.7 times out of ten. We really have very few options when we want to do a Spielberg entry for this had Oscar buzz, and... To illustrate this point, I have a quiz for Joseph. I have a game. (sighs) I am generating the game this week. Enjoy it. Soak it up. It's not that complicated. We're going to be, it's all basically trivia based. Wait, are you saying that Spielberg. my games are complicated? No, is I'm that saying shade? you're inventive. I'm saying I, I, my quiz is not necessarily that creative as yours, but it all goes to illustrate the point. <laughs> you saying inventive anything... reminds me of that Seinfeld scene where, um, <laughs> where Elaine is describing George to her friend who she wants to date him. And she's like, well, he's got a, a lot of character in his face. Um, he's short. <laughs> Um, he's stocky. He's fat. Is that what you're saying? That he's fat? Powerful. He is so powerful. He can lift a hundred pounds right up over his head. He's fat, and Elaine's like, he's powerful. 
Just like, you're not overly complicated, Joe. You're inventive. I mean, that's... No, no. Um, It's fine. It's good. (laughs) Gimme quiz. I like a quiz. Gimme quiz. Okay, so to jump us off in this Spielberg and Oscar game, trivia game that I have set up for Joe to give our listeners some kind of idea. 26 Spielberg films, unless I've done my math wrong, have had some type of Oscar nomination success. They've been nominated. Spielberg's films have totaled 32 Oscar wins and 132 nominations. Again, if my, unless my math is wrong. Um, so that's quite a bit. Joseph, Yes. I have a quiz to go through all of, like, different stats for okay. what degree of success Spielberg has had. Oh, before. this is fun. Okay, I like this. Are you ready? Yes. Okay, so we mentioned there's not a lot of options for us to discuss Spielberg on our podcast. Mm-hmm. Can you name the five films of Spielberg's, not including The Terminal, well, five including The Terminal. Okay. Already. That did not get any Oscar nominations. All right. Only five. That's, first of all, that's fully wild. Only five, not including any of his TV movies. Right, 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 right. Okay. So The Terminal is one. There are four others. There are four others. Okay. Here's my first little roadblock, which is, if the BFG did, I would have needed to see it to watch all the Oscar nominees, because that's well within the era where I've watched all the Oscar nominees. And now I'm trying to remember if I've seen the BFG or not. <laughs> <laughs> or whether I've just, like, totally forgot about it. Um, But I kind of don't think I've seen it, so I'm going to guess the BFG. The BFG is one of them. Okay, 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 okay. You have three more movies. Three more movies. All right. Oh, did Hook get nominated for, like, a visual effect or a score? I'm going to say it probably did. Um, See, the thing is, you need to catch the ones that were not successes, but also didn't get, like, a techie thing at the back end. Which is why I'm going to say Always. Always? Always is probably the only other movie we could do. Yeah. Yeah. On this podcast. Like, you could say the BFG, and I'm sure there were. We could do the BFG. Yeah. But yeah. Also, I don't want to watch the BFG again. I kind it's terrible. Yeah. Um, all right. So, two more. Two more. Two more. You're missing some low hanging. There's one that's pretty low hanging fruit for why. Crystal Skull? Crystal Skull is one of them. Okay. And okay. Because it's garbage. Okay. Um, However, I still think that that's pretty surprising. That it didn't get, like, sound or something like that? Right. All of the other... Though, I mean, everything about that movie. 2008, though. 2008 is a really big year for big techie movies, right? That's Dark Knight. That's Iron Man. That's, you know... Sure. WALL-E to an extent. Okay. Okay. All right. One more? Yes, one more. It's pretty obvious why it's not an Oscar nominee. To me. And it's not in terms of quality. That I couldn't speak to. I haven't seen this movie. Okay. Is it like a really early one? 
it's his movie before Jaws. It's Sugarland Express. That's okay. Yeah, that makes so sense. Sugarland Express, always the terminal, BFG, Indiana Jones and the Cri- Kingdom of the Crystal Skull or Crystal Skull, whatever the fuck. Um, those are his only movies without Oscar nomination. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I would have gotten to guessing Sugarland Express. So, uh, that alone right there, that it's the, that little ragtag of five movies. Yeah. Tells you why we, uh, that alone is why we can do an episode on them the terminal to me right right we um, almost have to what yeah. the degree to which spielberg movies have success with oscar however yeah. yes can you name his five the five movies of spielberg's with the most nominations there are two ties Ooh. okay there are t- what are his two most nominated movies? oh i see Start so there. two movies are the are the single most nominated mm-hmm. one of them's got to be schindler's list Schindler's List, correct. Tied with The Color Purple? No. Shit. But The Color Purple is one of the five. Oh, okay. Um, So three more, one of which is tied with Schindler for the most. Saving Private Ryan's got to be one of them. Saving Private Ryan tied with Color Purple. They both had 11, so the movie you're looking for has 12 nominations. Okay. I don't think Jaws had that many. I don't think Raiders of the Lost Ark. Is it E.T.? E.T. is the other one in the fifth. It had nine nominations. Yeah, it's got to be something that had like at least an acting nomination to sort of... You can't get that many nominations without anything in acting. Um, oh, it's it's got to be Lincoln. It is Lincoln. I remember when Lincoln uh, landed its nominations, people being surprised that it was tied for... The most Spielberg nominations ever. Yeah. Yeah, because a lot, most of his successes don't have acting nominations. Like, in terms of, like, his big yes. sort of, like, E.T., Jaws, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Close, well, Close Encounters had um, uh, Melinda Dillon, at the very mm-hmm. least. I don't think Dreyfus got And on top of that, he hasn't had many acting winners who, besides... Um, Daniel Day-Lewis? Daniel Day-Lewis... Um, Mark Rylance. Right. I think that might be it. Nobody won. Obviously, The Color Purple didn't win anything. Um, Famously, one of the most nominated movies to have no wins. Neeson and uh, Fines both lost for Schindler's List. Um, Hopkins lost for Amistad. Hanks lost for Saving Private Ryan. Walken lost for Catch Me If You Can. No acting nominees for Munich. No acting nominees for Yeah, I'm looking at the list of Spielberg winners, and I think it is just those two. So it's even a recent thing that actors have won for Spielberg movies. Yeah. Streep should have won for The Post. Um, Can you name how many Best Picture nominees Spielberg's has? Is it 10, 11, or 12? Oh, boy. Okay. How many of his films have been nominated for Best Picture? 10, 11, or 12? Can I try and count them on my hands? Uh, that's going to be your next question. If you can. Give oh, me which ones? Oh, okay. Yes. 10, 11, or 12? 12 seems like a lot, I'm going to say. Um, I'm going to say 10. It's 12. It's 12? Are you kidding me? It's 12 Best Picture nominees. That's can so many. Can you name them? Jaws. Yes. Raiders. 
Yes. Close Encounters? Yes. Schindler, Saving yes. Private Ryan, Lincoln. Uh-huh. That's what, six? I'm halfway there. Color Purple. Uh-huh. The pur- that is six. No, I'm counting... Oh, wait. You have Jaws, Close Encounters, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Color Purple, Schindler's List, and Saving Private Ryan. That's six. And I said Lincoln. Or- and I said Lincoln as well. Oh, okay. I didn't hear you say Lincoln. So Lincoln makes seven. E.T. makes eight. Uh-huh. War Horse makes nine. Yes. Post makes ten. Yes. Bridge of Spies, eleven. Uh-huh. What am I missing? Uh, not 1941. Not Empire of the Sun. We have talked about this movie, this episode already. All right. Not. Oh, it's Munich. It is Munich. <laughs> 12. Yeah. Wow. Wild Best Picture nominees. Okay, so now we're getting into the really fun portion of my game for you. I am going to have you, I'm going to give you three titles of Spielberg movies. You have to rank them from least nominations to most <laughs> nominations. Okay, all right. In, in terms of how many nominations they got. I'm going to give you the movies alphabetically. You have to put them in order of least to most nominations. Okay. Okay. Starting off with three big ones for you. Okay. I'm giving you Jaws, Jurassic Park, and Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> okay. Well, Jurassic Park got at most, let's say, four. Visual, both sounds, and like maybe an editing, or maybe uh, probably not even cinematography. So I'm going to say Jurassic Park is least. Okay. I'm going to say... I feel like like Jaws got Best Picture nomination, but like no acting, no directing. I'm going to say Jaws is second least and Raiders is most. Well done. You got it exactly correct. Jurassic Park has three nominations. Jaws only has four. Yeah. Um, which like, and Raiders of the Lost Ark has eight. What I think is interesting about Jaws only having the four nominations is that famous video of Spielberg yep. freaking out because he doesn't get directed for he doesn't get nominated for best director. It's like the movie actually didn't do all that great. Well, that's with... why that's why I also that's how I got that because in in that video after he like pitches a fit about him not getting nominated, he also is like. But did we get this? Did we get that? Did we get that? And they're like, no, no, no. So it's like, I knew that like Jaws generally underwhelmed, even with the Best Picture nomination. Well, with that Best Picture nomination, it probably speaks to how widely liked that movie was or the power of like what a big blockbuster it was. Jaws, by the way, is a perfect movie. Like Uh, Jaws is great. Jaws is also a great COVID movie. Yes. Um, Holy shit. uh, Yes. How many times have you seen that on Twitter? Being like, I watched Jaws uh, the week of Fourth of July, which I normally don't do, but is a tradition. It's Um, a great Fourth of July, and it was like as everything was reopening, and I was like, all of these governors, like local uh, government people, need to rewatch Jaws and learn something. You're all the mayor of Amity Island, for Christ's sake! Hi, listeners, stop going to bars. Um, Yeah, yes, for God's sake. We'll get off I, our I want to we'll go to TIFF in 2021. For God's sake, stop going to bars. 
Uh, we're dying inside. Um, the thing about Jaws, though, before we move on to your next ranking, Jaws only had those four nominations, but it won all of them besides Best Picture. Would it have been... Well, there was no competitive visual effects, but did it win, like, a special visual effects? Let me look that up, because I did not include any special awards in any of these, and I'm sure mm. one of them might Because I don't know won. even, like what the state of the sound awards were back in 1975 no all of jaws's three oscars were competitive it only lost best picture um so yes that's my little asterisk i guess i should have said earlier what were the the, none of the awards or mentions that i included in this are special prizes gotcha cool cool cool. what were the ones that it won jaws won for sound film editing and original score there we go so it like wasn't a cinematography nominee. It wasn't a screen. Back when nominee. sound was one category, just like we're going back to. Mm-hmm. Uh, very excited to see. Uh, never, rarely, sometimes, always, and I don't know the wretched nominated for best sound <laughs> this year. Invisible Man, Invisible Man, Invisible Man. The Ten movies that'll be eligible. Um, anyway, uh, like I said, we're getting off the soapbox. Back to the game. Okay, so your next three rankings again from least to most nominations. I have for you, Catch Me If You Can, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and Munich. Okay, Catch Me If You Can is going to be the least because it was like infuriatingly not nominated in all sorts of categories that it should have been, including score. And I'm pretty sure it didn't even get, it might have gotten a costume nomination, but maybe not even that. Like it got Walken, but like frustratingly little else. What are the other two? Uh... Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Munich. Okay. Munich? Speaking of special awards, Catch Me If You Can should have gotten a special Oscar for its opening credits. Absolutely it should have. And again, but the score is such a big part of that. Um, yeah. So Munich got Picture and Director, no acting nominees. I think it got a screenplay nomination. And probably like a f- couple others, but like it wasn't a huge nomination leader probably somewhere between four and seven um and then sorry one more time what's the other one close Close encounters Encounters of the third so close encounters was during that era where spielberg wasn't getting director nominations um it did get at least one acting nomination it probably got sound and editing so i'm gonna say catch me um least munich second close encounters first well done exactly right all right uh catch me if you can as you said had two munich had five and close encounters had eight yeah okay all right right. moving along to the next batch 1941 the adventures of tin tin and the post Ooh, post famously only got two picture and actress I'm so—1941 is such a blind spot for me. I've never seen it, and I'm not very conversant in its Oscar successes. And then Tintin got, like— Hmm. Okay. If The Post only got two, and there's no ties in this, I'm gonna guess Tintin either got one or three. And three seems like a lot for Tintin. I'm not sure where those three would have come. So I'm going to say Tintin least, post second least, 1941 most. 
Exactly correct. The Adventures of Tintin had one nomination. The Post had two, and 1941 had three. Okay. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Your next uh, batch of three is Amistad, Hook, and Ready Player One. <laughs> okay. Um, Amistad, Hook, and Ready Player One, all of which feel like they would have been one nomination movies, truly. Um, all right. Amistad had Hopkins. And I think one more. I think Ready Player One. I think this is another maybe one, two, three. I think Ready Player One had the least. Amistad, the second least. And, um, and Hook maybe got like three. That's my guess. So you're saying Ready Player One, Amistad, Hook. Yes. Thought I would have caught you on that. You are correct. Ah! I am impressing Ready myself. Ready One had one nomination. Yep. Amistad had four. Whoa! And Hook had five what? nominations. <laughs> Hook is like one of the better. Can you um, please tell me the nominated. five nominations that Hook got? Like, not to All like right. extend this, but please. I will absolutely look that up right now. While I'm doing that, I am here to tell you that you are actually wrong. His first best director nomination was for Closing. It was for Closing. Well, with eight, I imagine that, yes, that was. That whole legacy of him not being nominated for best director for a long time, A, that would have made his first best director nomination for Raiders of the Lost Ark, which would be super weird, and I think we would talk about that. Yeah. But um, it's really just he wasn't nominated for Jaws, and then it got exacerbated when he wasn't nominated for Color Pro. Right, Okay, all right. That's the interesting thing about Color Purple still losing all those nominations. It wasn't nominated for director. Um, Okay, Hook's five nominations. Art direction, costume design, visual effects, makeup, and original song for the song When You're Alone. No! Yes. I genuinely have no idea what that song is. Uh, hold on. Let me look up the song credits and see who. <laughs> this is the most fascinating thing uh, when five. I was doing all of this. Uh, when I was looking up all of these songs for, um, or looking up all these movies in his Oscar history, Hook getting five nominations. That's wild. Is truly the best. Um, it was sung by Amber Scott. Sure. When You're Alone by Amber Scott. I wonder if she performed it on the actual Oscar ceremony. Is it sung by a child? I mean, yeah. maybe. Is Amber it like Scott does it like little daughter it sing it or something? Out? God, I guess. No, yeah, she plays Maggie Banning. Oh, so like the little girl from the movie is the one. Wait, I wonder who wrote it. Now I'm looking it up too. Oh, it's John John Williams did the yeah, did the lyric. Yeah. The the music rather. Wild. So Hook is maybe actually the like pristine example of Spielberg getting Oscar buzz for just about anything because Hook is a, maybe the most reviled movie in his entire filmography and it got 
One, two, three, four, five nominations. Wait, can I also give you a little tidbit now that I've also looked this up? The, the lyricist yes. on that song, Leslie Bracuse, also wrote Goldfinger from uh, uh, the Bond movie and Le Jazz Hop from uh, Victor Victoria. Iconic. Clearly, Fantastic. so clearly the pedigree um, carried. Was there. Yeah, okay. All right, this next uh, batch of three is all Spielberg sequels. I have for you Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, oh, you motherfucker. And Jurassic Park, The Lost World. <laughs> okay, okay. I would believe that the the Lost World Jurassic Park would have gotten sound, sound, visual. So let's say three there. Temple of... So, Last Crusade, I remember being decently well-received. And I was not old enough to have noticed what the reception for Temple of Doom was. But I do feel like it was seen as a letdown. So I'm gonna... Part of the reason we have the PG-13 rating. Yeah. I'm gonna... Alright, this is probably gonna be the one that I screw up. But, um, which makes a lot of sense. I'm going to say Temple of Doom least, Last Crusade second least, and Lost World the most. No, actually, you did screw this up. Yeah. Would you like to give it another guess? Is it Crusade least, Doom second least, Lost World most? Nope. Okay. All right, so the answer is Lost World had one nomination. Oh. Temple of Doom had two, and Last Crusade had three. All right, okay. All right, so the next one, I have a science fiction grouping for you. Uh, AI, Artificial Intelligence, Minority Report, and War of the Worlds. So both AI and Minority Report were, again, much like Catch Me If You Can, frustratingly under-rewarded. I would argue that all of these were probably under-rewarded. Yes, although, I mean, I have my problems with War of the Worlds. Uh... When we get beyond I don't the love Minority Report, the way that everybody loves. Oh, minority. I love I love Minority Report. Okay, um, I think where the world's got a bunch of text, though, is the thing. So I'm gonna say that Minority Report had the least, AI the second least, and War of the Worlds the most. Exactly correct. Minority Report had one, AI had two, and War of the Worlds had three. Yep. 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 All right, your last ranking option is uh, Bridge of Spies, Empire of the Sun, and War Horse. <laughs> okay, Bridge of Spies, Empire of the Sun, and War Horse. War Horse. Empire of the Sun, much like 1941, is a blind spot for me. Um, Empire of the Sun is great. I keep hearing this. And yet, it's never a thing where I'm like, I want to spend my time in that space. Okay. Um, Sure, sure. It's a very long, huge movie, but it's fantastic. Bridge of Spies had Picture and Rylance and maybe not much more. War Horse had kind of a few, including Picture. I don't think it got a director nomination. I think 2011 was Hazana Vicious. Alan, Malik, uh, uh, Alexander Payne, and maybe 
Bennett Miller. Anyway, um, I'm going to say Bridge of Spies the least, Warhorse the second least, Empire of Sun the most. No, would you like to guess again? Bridge of Spies the least, Empire of the Sun second least, Warhorse the most. No, they all tied for six nominations. I hate you. You suck. I hate this. <laughs> Wait, they all had six nominations? That's way more than I thought any of them had. Yes. Wow. Empire Bridge of the Spies Sun, the only six. non-Best Picture nominee there. Right. Right. Yeah, because Bridge of Spies nomination morning overperformed what people were expecting it to. Right. Okay. And when Warhorse didn't get the director nom, people were like, okay, it's not going to win anything. Right. But also, Warhorse, I think, was expected to get a lot less than it got nomination wise. Like, I feel like a, a lot of people just thought Warhorse was going to get completely left off. Yeah. Anyway, I did okay you, until you, the, like, um, brought that bullshit at the end there. I did really well <laughs> in that game, I have to say. You did very, very well. I had to be evil to you at some point because I am usually nice to you and you're usually <laughs> evil to me during games. <laughs> okay. All right. That was a very All fun right. game. I just want to take, before we move on, we're I have just a little quick bit about the movies that are win uh, of his wins. Yes. Um, can you name his four most winning films? Schindler. Yes. Schindler is the most uh, awarded uh, Spielberg film. It won seven Oscars. I mean, Lincoln was nominated for a lot, but like, didn't really win much. Didn't even win um, screenplay, which was like, which is like how like I I see that more as a Tony Kushner like scripted film than I do like attributing it to Spielberg. Yeah, like, that screenplay is incredible. Yeah, and nobody cares for whatever reason. It's funny that Argo beat it and. Um, Certain people have never let that grudge go. Um, all right. Schindler? Gosh, now we get into, like, Raiders, E.T., Close Encounters. Like, how much did they win? I mean... All right, I'm going to say... How many How many of his most am I naming? Uh, you are looking for a movie that won five and two movies that won four. All right. So really, he doesn't have these movies that kind of run the gamut, to be honest. No, no, he doesn't. Um, I'm going to say Raiders is one of them. Raiders won four. Okay, so I need a five and a and another four? Five and a four. Five and a four, five and a four. Is, did, is, is E.T. one of them? E.T. won four. So we need a five. Okay, so Jurassic mm-hmm. Park didn't win five. And we saw that Jaws only got nominated for four, so I'm going to say Close Encounters. Nope. Close Encounters has only won one Oscar. I believe it was the Cinematography Oscar. So what if has won... it's not the Cinematography Oscar, it should have won that too. Five. Oh, Private Ryan. It's right there. It's Private Ryan. Yes, Saving Private Ryan won five. It was the... Uh, was the most awarded movie that year did not win best picture right jaws won three can you name his other movie that won three is that jurassic park that is jurassic park yeah uh lincoln won two you mentioned that yep uh close encounters got one oscar can you name the three other spielberg movies that got one oscar Ooh, that got one oscar um bridge of spies yes two more movies I don't think Warhorse won anything. 
Um, uh, two more. Did Empire of the Sun win one out of those six nominations? No. No. Color Purple obviously didn't win anything. Oh, Jaws. No. No, wait, you said Jaws, Jaws won. won three. You we drew Jaws thought. won three, of course. Um, Jaws won three Oscars, and you have two more movies to guess. I don't know what you're doing there. <laughs> I don't know what you're doing there. I know you think you're giving me a hint, and yet... <sighs> so two I more movies that won one apiece. Yes. And you're saying three, two... Ready Player One didn't win, did it? No. Okay. Did not. But you're obviously... Thank God, I hate that movie. I know. That is my least favorite Spielberg movie. I think it's his worst movie. You're giving me a clue... Oh, 1941? No. What is this fucking clue you're giving me? (laughs) I said Jaws won three Oscars, and you're looking for two movies... If everybody listening to this knows what Chris is talking about and you're screaming <laughs> at nothing as you're listening to this podcast, I'm so sorry. Love having the listeners on my side. Listen, no, maybe they're just being like, Chris, your hint is insane. and It's not insane. I am giving you such a... I gave you a one, two, three hint. I know. What are the movies that we've talked about? Okay, one of the movies that is his most awarded, it got four Oscars, is Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, is it Last Crusade? Yes, Last Crusade and... Temple of Doom. Temple of Doom. Both Last Crusade and Temple of Doom won one Oscar. Won one Oscar apiece. (sighs) Sorry, listeners. Sorry that took me so long. (laughs) Yeah, this is not the roundup of Oscar winners for Spielberg I would have expected. Schindler's List, Saving Private Ryan, Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T., Jurassic Park, Jaws, Lincoln, Bridge of Spies, The Last Crusade, Temple of Doom, and Close Encounters are his only, scare quotes, movies that have won Oscars. I was going to say, oh, only those ones. Poor guy. Um, But it's a weird group of movies. It is. A lot of his best movies won zero Oscars. Um, that's, that's, That's pretty wild. That's my game for you. And I think that, like, that alone kind of can tell you the Spielberg conversation as far as it relates to the terminal for Oscar and Oscar predictions. And Yeah, so I want to, now that we've spent all that time on Spielberg, and rightly so, he's the reason, he's the biggest reason why this movie had Oscar buzz, I need us to downshift into Catherine Zeta-Jones for a second. because I always need us to downshift into Catherine Zeta-Jones, specifically into, as I refer to it, the Casa. Casa Zeta-Jones. We're going to settle on into the Casa, and because the terminal is right at the forefront. So Catherine Zeta-Jones, up to the point where she wins for Chicago, she's really on a spectacular upswing where like she breaks through Mm -hmm. in the mask of Zorro opposite Antonio Banderas. It's this very kind of spectacular it's and it, and it's a really, it's a cool breakthrough for her. And then the very next year she makes entrapment with Sean Connery, which is why he says Catherine when he hands her, uh, her Oscar for Chicago, Catherine. And the Oscar goes to, Catherine. Yeah! Entrapments, 
super great and fun. Um, she makes the haunting in ninety nine, which is a disaster, but whatever. That's not that's does not get hung up on her. I like that dumbass movie. She has a really fun little small part in High Fidelity, actually, of all of the mm-hmm. like ex girlfriends. Like she really pops in that movie. She's phenomenal in Traffic. It's a Golden Globe nomination. Almost gets an Oscar nomination. Probably deserved an Oscar nomination. And then two thousand two, she gives an unimpeachably fantastic performance in chicago she wins the oscar running away um it is a huge high point for her and like at no point during that run did anybody was anybody like this is bullshitty you know what i mean like she's only winning because she's michael douglas's wife or whatever no none of that it's not like she's being yeah she's not being carried on like the wings of superstardom or anything it is a deserved and and perfectly sensible oscar win and then immediately after she makes the most insane string of movies where like it is we talked about during the naomi watts series about like working with the right directors in the wrong time we don't talk enough about how Catherine zeta jones like drove her career into oblivion by doing exactly the same thing where she's like what's her mm-hmm. coen brothers movie it's intolerable cruelty perhaps their worst movie i think so um her spielberg movie is the terminal easily his worst movie of this whole this run stretch. um yeah in the conversation for worst movie that he's ever made. Um, Ocean's 12, which a lot of people really like, but like is a huge both departure and disappointment from Ocean's 11. So like she mm-hmm. hops on that train at the exact wrong time. Legend of Zorro, which is the sequel to Mask of Zorro that um, nobody remembers actually happened. Way too late for a sequel for that movie. Critics hated it, but like that's again, like it's her Martin Campbell movie. She like back with Martin Campbell, um, does nothing. She goes back with Stephen Frears for uh because he had d- directed High Fidelity. Um and makes a movie. So okay, after the Legend of Zorro, it stops being even movies that exist that don't do well. It is no reservations doesn't exist. Uh, her Stephen Frears movie is called Lay the Favorite about gambling. Doesn't exist. Um, a movie called The Rebound with uh, directed by Bart Freundlich, the uh, uh, Mr. Julianne Moore, doesn't exist. A movie called Death Defying Acts directed by Gillian Armstrong doesn't exist. A movie called Playing for Keeps doesn't exist. Broken City doesn't exist. The only one in this entire run from 2007 to 2013 that exists is Rock of Ages, which even among disaster musicals, nobody chooses to think about anymore because it was so universally just everybody was just absolutely not. She sings Hit Me With Your Best Shot while uh, Brian Cranston is being spanked with a ruler in that movie. It is horrendous. She actually does a decent job with the actual performance of Hit Me With Your Best Shot, but like... Oh, I'm sure that she's the best part of the movie. She is. She's, she is. But like that movie is a obnoxious disaster. And I say this as somebody who saw that show on Broadway and had a really good time with it. But like the movie is an unmitigated disaster. And then it's not even till she makes side effects with Soderbergh, re- reuniting with Soderbergh, um, one of her many iconic lesbians right like side effects is the it's the point where like she like comes up for air and but then that doesn't even lead to anything she only made, has made two feature films since then one of which is red 2 which sad um and one of which is again another movie that does not exist called dad's army 
which is a British war comedy. In the midst of all that, she's on Broadway once. She's in the lead role in A Little Night Music. She wins the Tony Award in a famously weak Tony year. Um, I was I, I, her winning speech is wonderful. She talks about having sex with Michael Douglas. It is, but also at that Tony Awards, she sings "Send in the Clowns" in one of the most like notoriously bad Tony Awards performances that like constantly gets brought up. It is from everything that I've heard from people who saw that production of A Little Night Music. Everybody liked her in the actual show. Right, I didn't yeah. really hear a whole lot of bad word, bad word about her, but then she performs really poorly at the Tonys, and then that Tony Awards year, the 2010 Tonys, was the year where she won, Scarlett Johansson won for View from the Bridge, and then Denzel and Viola Davis won for Fences. And while nobody was like saying that Denzel and Viola Davis didn't deserve for Fences, that year became very much like Hollywood is taking over the Tony Awards, mm-hmm. right? And like yeah. that was the story. Because again, it's a really relatively weak Tony's year. That was the year that like Memphis won Best Musical. And it's not like Memphis was bad, but like in terms of like. Nobody remembers Memphis. Nobody remembers Memphis. Catherine Zeta Jones, I looked it up because it was like, oh God, what like great performance did she? beat that like everybody's up in arms about but like she beat kate baldwin for finian's rainbow which like people really liked finian's rainbow but it didn't do very well it bombed, it bombed. montego glover for memphis who probably should have won but like you that can was the one that everybody kind of wanted to win at the time i really loved christian knoll in ragtime but again that ragtime bombed. bombed and then sherry renee scott in everyday rapture which i did not see hell yeah but like sherry renee scott is like the definition of like a niche well and also just like her her sort of fandom is pretty niche i think yeah um she's playing herself it was a one woman it was a one woman show right exactly um but like so you see why Catherine zeta jones won but you also again with all those other eddie redmayne also won that year although eddie redmayne wasn't like super known as a film actor at this point so like Mm -hmm. um but the the tone of that one afterwards was just like we gotta get we gotta stop giving hollywood stars all these tony awards and it really since then the tonys really kind of have rallied around their own in a way that like hanks doesn't even win for the nora efron play that he did even though everybody assumed that he was gonna win philip seymour hoffman doesn't win for death of a salesman he loses to james corden who at that point was very much a broadway guy so Catherine zeta jones is almost like the the point of no return for yeah. Hollywood stars winning Tony Awards. But, like, I don't know. What what are your thoughts and opinions, and what do you make of this post-Chicago run for Catherine Zeta-Jones, where she just never was able to, A, harness that momentum, or B, even get back into things? I'm honestly just so happy that she has her Oscar for Chicago, because it's very much... I mean, like, you can say some of this is musicals, but I don't just necessarily mean musicals. It's very much the type of performance that we don't see a lot of because we don't make, we, as in you and I, sit around making movies. <laughs> but, like, the, the, the culture tastes yeah. and the current culture doesn't make movies that allow for performances 
like that anymore and I think that she is one of those performers A I mean it's a lot of sexism and ageism too that once you become a woman of a certain age there's less roles for you right? Um, or like less space made for you to perform whatever but I think that like that type of not even camp but like broadness and hugeness there's not a lot of things like that now and I think she's just that type of performer like we don't have really Roz Russells anymore. Yeah. Um, And that's where she is best because I think of even like a movie that I have a lot of fun with, like entrapment, like that's not really her movie. She's not really having fun. Like I think the closest thing to the type of screen persona that she is giving in Chicago is maybe mask of Zorro. Like in terms yeah. of like what I'm what I'm getting at the type of yeah. like well like you can see what the appeal of something like a Rock of Ages was where it's like oh it's another movie where I can sort of hoof it and um you know I'm playing I get this like sort of spotlight moment like people forget that Rock of Ages was considered like a prestige product before filming happened I know. like Amy Adams was almost in that movie yep. it was a big deal that they got Tom Cruise in that movie Tom Cruise though see Tom Cruise in that movie wants to be what John Travolta is to hairspray yes and John Travolta is exactly bizarrely what that hairspray movie needs Mm-hmm. Whereas Tom Cruise completely sinks the ship that is Rock of Ages. Which isn't to I'm say that the rest of Rock it. of Ages is great, but like Tom Cruise is the fatal flaw at the heart of that movie that like n- everything bad sort of radiates from. It's a unmitigated disaster. It's so bad. But like that kind of thing even makes more sense. The thing that doesn't make any sense to me is why is she not at least getting better movies than no reservations lay the favorite playing for keeps like why why is it all these movies that just absolutely make no impression in the culture that to me is the most puzzling i mean i think it's just that they're not roles that are right for her whereas like a huge portion of the reason why chicago is as good as it is is because she's so perfectly cast and gives a great performance um i mean you could talk about like feud and how i do i did forget basically wants to murder her (laughs) Um, uh captain zeta jones we love you um stay alive if anything if anything uh bizarre should happen we know who unfortunate we know who did it yeah um but also, like, her performance in Feud is sort of like, I feel like we've now settled into this era where, like, Catherine Zeta-Jones is well-deployed if you have a supporting role that can go very campy. Because I think that's also where her side effects character succeeds so well. Is It's so... It's just like, but it's so much, like, scheming lesbian doctor that, like... It's a throwback. Bill Kelly also scheming iconic lesbian. <laughs> That's true. Uh, yeah, tr- the the contributions that uh, Catherine Zeta Jones has made to queer ish cinema uh, are definitely definitely recognized. Definitely should be recognized. <laughs> what I almost wonder is like if it is even aside from Chicago and like that level of what 
type of performer she is. If this would all maybe be different had she gotten the nomination for Traffic and had people considered her seriously as like a serious dramatic actress, maybe she would have gotten more roles maybe. like what she gets to do in Traffic. It just, I, I have a hard time believing that she's, that she at least wasn't getting offers, getting the offers in, let's say, the rest of the aughts. Like, I can see where, like, now she's probably not getting the offers. But, like, I have to imagine that in, like, that stretch of, like, 2007 to 2012, when she made No Reservations and The Rebound and Lay the Favorite and Death Defying Acts, like, she had to have been offered. Because, like, even in those movies, she could be giving, like, A-plus level performances and no one would know. Because, like, those movies barely got released. Right. It's just, it's so puzzling to me. And, like, you look at, like, she won her Oscar the same night that Nicole Kidman won her Oscar. They both, you know, they both had kids from there. They both sort of, like, you know, had to negotiate their careers around also being mothers and that whole kind of thing. And, like, Nicole has made definitely her share of you know, odd choices and not all of them work, but like, and I mean, I guess it's unfair to sort of like stack anybody up against Kidman because like Kidman has navigated her career probably better than anybody else. Well, Nicole Kidman also had like the type of roles that she's still doing now. She had that kind of as a foundation in her choices and her roles before her Oscar. That's win, true. Too. And I don't think that's true of Catherine Zeta-Jones. Yeah. Catherine's Oscar comes like she's, she makes Catherine. Catherine's Oscar uh comes after a surprisingly few like by the time she wins for chicago she's an a-lister but like she had really only made five movies or so that anybody had ever seen by that point Mm -hmm. traffic high fidelity mask of zero entrapment and i guess i guess the haunting in america's sweethearts so six but like the haunting in america's sweethearts are both like big disasters well, in America's Sweethearts, too, is, like, the role she's playing is very villainous. Yeah. So I wonder if that had some, like, perception issues there. I don't know. But again, all of Can that... We... Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, say your point. I well, all of that leads up to Chicago, and Chicago is such a peak that it feels like whatever happened before Chicago, Chicago still happened. So, yeah. you know, coming off of that... It's just, people talk about, I think, uh, incorrectly, um, this idea of an Oscar curse or whatever, that actresses who win Oscars um, are cursed with their careers sort of like downshifting. And I think part of that is that the kinds of roles they get offered change and the kinds of roles that they accept change. Um, But, like, I've never seen quite so stark a plummet from an actress as A-listy as Catherine Zeta-Jones. You can make the argument for, up until last year, you could make the argument for Renee Zellweger. You could. Yes, I think that's the other one. It's the, the wow, maybe Chicago's cursed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Truly, only Christine Baranski was able to uh, uh, go on the upswing from Chicago. And like Lucy Liu. Yeah. <sighs> what else to talk about? Know. Can we can we uh, talk about her in the terminal a little bit to bring it back? Yes, I think she's legitimately terrible in this movie, but she's also playing. It's a horrid a character, bonkers character. It's a terribly makes no sense underwritten, 
given the most um stock motivation where she's you know the lovelorn stewardess dating a married man i know i should leave him but yada 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 and played by michael nori by the way who um i know was in flash dance but i still know him best as summer's dad from the oc um <laughs> and also as um what's his name uh ron rifkin's boyfriend from brothers and sisters anyway um i think first of all this movie is two hours and 10 minutes long i think the movie maybe gets actively better and makes like it's more palatable if her character just isn't in the movie i don't understand why this character in the circumstances he in has that he is in has to have a love story i was gonna say this it feels very much um shoehorned in to the idea because it's not like he ends up with her it's not the movie is not a love story it's just a subplot that somebody along some point was was like well you gotta have a love interest and yeah i I, she gets introduced pretty late into the movie relatively and relative to most of the other characters and it was evident that the audience didn't really like her character there was a in test screenings of the movie there was a completely different ending where they like go off into the city together. Mm-hmm. That and the audience was like, cut, don't need it. Cut. Yeah. Don't need her. Let him go to the Ramada by himself. Yeah. Let me go cry and listen to some jazz. Just listen to some sad jazz at a hotel bar. Yeah. I, I feel bad. I, I agree with you that I don't think she's very good in this movie, but like it I don't is think it's her fault. It's an impossible like, character to make work. The movie comes to a dead halt whenever we have to deal with this love story. One million percent. Absolutely. And, like, it even makes these, like, sort of half-hearted, like, you know, at some point she has to find out. uh, For whatever reason, they decide that they're going to keep it secret from her that he's a refugee living in the airport. And then, A, for no reason. But, like, but uh, no reason other than the fact that, like, the movies have decided that, like, all romances need to have an element of deception in them at all times so that she can, like, find out that he's not a traveling uh, businessman, independent contractor, that he's a political refugee. And that's supposed to make her, like, angry? Like, she gets, like, this, like, momentarily angry. It's just like, all men lie. And, um, and it's such a inconsequential blip it gets papered over so quickly but like you to the point where it's just like well why was she even mad in the first place it's not a thing you get mad about why was he lying about it in the first place it's such a contrivance it's such a again i keep bringing this up it's like somebody wrote this while like skimming the index of a screenwriter manual of just like Uh you need to have this you gotta have that and it's just none of it feels organic at all Yes, I fundamentally agree with all of it. Like, all of the script problems are, like, in their prototype under her character, and it would save us 20 minutes from the movie. Yep. She's really not in it that much. No. She got second billing above the title for this. I Because it's her big post-Oscar movie. Mm-hmm. Working with Spielberg, yeah. Tom Hanks. She's the love interest. Yep. I don't know. I felt bad for her watching. No, I did, too. I did, too. Should we mention Tom Hanks a little bit? I know that we're like we're pushing we've been it here for a minute. Yeah, I don't know if there's that much to say for Tom Hanks beyond the performance. What's interesting, maybe, about it is that it is like, as we mentioned with De Niro a few weeks back, it's in that gap 
that long gap between his nominations, but I don't think anybody was really clamoring for it. I'm a little tiny bit surprised that he wasn't Globe nominated for it, but like the Globes didn't really like it's not like it was a Globes musical comedy year where they were scraping the barrel right for nominees like even Spacey who's in Beyond the Sea which I haven't seen and you say is terrible at least it got is. that musical distinction yes. so it's like that nomination was never not happening probably the of the Hanks performances post Castaway that I would have r- rode hardest for for him to get a nomination um Road to Perdition Catch Me If You Can um and Captain Phillips. Yeah, Captain Phillips. Like the terminal does not make that list. Um yeah, I think those are those are the big ones. A lot of people really love him in Bridge of Spies. I think he's of course very good in Bridge of Spies, but probably not. Um a lot of people fucking love Sully. I still don't understand it. Um Sully's a nightmare. And I would have nominated him for the post. I think he's phenomenal in the post. Um but yeah, the terminal does not approach those levels of um you know, justice for Tom Hanks. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna campaign for Victor Noworski as one of the great Tom Hanks roles. I'm just not gonna do it. Also, like in terms of like the wider failure of this movie, it actually didn't quite bomb in the way we maybe think of it now in terms of being this big Spielberg bomb. Like box office wise, it's in the range of The Post and Bridge of Spies. It's certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, which shocked me. I mean, there's several movies have hit. I mean, Hook is his, I think, lowest on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. The Lost World is even less than this movie is on Rotten Tomatoes. I will say, and like, Ebert gave this three out of four stars. Like, a lot of critics really loved it. Even, like, kind of, like, I was surprised that, like, Kenneth Turan has a fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes and all this stuff. Of course, Rex Reed loved it. But, um, (laughs) if you, if you were to give me, the choice of watching the terminal ever again versus watching hook for like the 17th time or whatever, I would absolutely watch hook every single time. Oh, fully 100%. Like I could probably, you know, objectively <laughs> hook has a ton of problems and probably deserves its reputation. But like every single time I would choose hook over this movie. Gwyneth cameo. Uh, should we move on to the IMDb? Game? Let's. All right, explain what the IMDb game is to our listeners, new and old. Sure. Every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try and guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are television or voiceover work, we mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue. And if that is not enough, it just becomes a free for all of hints. And uh, Eat to Bites. <laughs> Quibi should have been called Eat to Bites. Yeah. <laughs> you fucked anyway. up, Quibi. <laughs> Only in that way did you fuck up, Quibi. Uh, literally just that name. Um, yes. Would you like to give or guess first? I'll give first. Why not? Okay, what do you have for me? So I went down the Jeff Nathanson route, uh, screenwriter for this film. We mentioned that before this film, he did uh, Catch Me If You Can for Steven Spielberg. But his first uh, notable, truly notable film screenwriting credit was on the seminal 1997 action sequel, Speed to Cruise Control. Uh, Bring me Jason Patrick. Again. No, no, we've already uh, elided the Jason Patrick thing. That film did star Jason Patrick and Sandra Bullock, but the villain 
in that film was, of course, as we all remember, Willem yes. Dafoe. So give me Willem Dafoe's known for. Oh, cuddly little bug, uh, Willem <laughs> Only Dafoe. you, you maniac, would say that Willem Dafoe is a cuddly little bug. Okay. I mean, the Florida Project, come on! like the, That is his cuddly little bug performance among... The cuddliest man. <laughs> Fine. I mean, depending on what you're into, you could cuddle up to him All right. in the lighthouse. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, okay. Um, the question is, what or of his Oscar nominations will be in there? Willem Dafoe stealthily amassing an Amy Adams-esque... Uh, will he ever win resume he uh he's got a lot of oscar nominations especially recently lest we forget he got nominated for at eternity's gate indeed he's a four-time oscar nominee so there's already more oscar nominations than there are or there's exactly uh as many oscar nominations as there are slots uh, i'll get it out of the way and say spider-man indeed spider-man 2002 is uh the first of his known for uh, Platoon. Platoon's gotta be in there. His first Oscar nomination is not one of his known for. Eh. Damn. It's gotta be because he's one of the... I think he's lower build, right? No? Then, Am I crazy? Then Sheen? Yeah. Mm. The Wes Anderson stuff, is, it shows up for everybody. I think he's in the Grand Budapest Hotel. Is he in the Grand Budapest Hotel? Yeah, he is. Grand Budapest Hotel. That's a very good guess, but that is also wrong. So that's two wrong guesses, so you're going to get years. Your years are 2017, 2018, and 2019. Oh, well, there you go. Okay. Why is that Eternity's Gate on there? I don't know, but it is. That's so stupid. It's so stupid. I mean, he's first build. Probably all of the photos have him tagged to Yeah. Again, um, you you try then, you try to figure out the algorithm, and the algorithm will fight you at every turn. Yeah. Uh, well, twenty seventeen is the Florida Project, and twenty nineteen has to be the Lighthouse. Indeed, you have got them all: the Florida Project and the Lighthouse. It is kind of shocking that his known for is so heavily recent, recent. and yet yeah. doesn't have something like Aquaman, which was both like popular oh, and yeah. well-known do you know what i mean but also it doesn't that i i would have he's got to be like eighth build in aquaman though that is true um but uh, you guessed grand budapest the wes anderson i would have probably guessed would have been uh the life aquatic but uh, like yeah neither one definitely. of those um he's a voice in both finding nemo and finding dory kind of surprised not that like his his filmography is first of all so satisfying because there's every type of movie in this like he's I'm telling you if the florida project came at the end of this run instead of the beginning he would be an oscar winner i mean the florida project he's only had the one nomination since i guess what you're saying is if they if if the florida project and at eternity's gate flipped years yeah yeah i mean the thing about the florida project ran into this brick wall of everybody came around on sam rockwell all at once and mm-hmm. you know we whatever i'm not going to get into the three people billboards had a problem. discussion people have problems with the actual movie of the florida project too just the the, the bleakness of it um yeah but uh, but it's surprising that because he's such a w- antidote to that bleakness in that movie it's it would have made a lot of sense for people to have latched on i think honestly 
I think not enough people saw that movie. I think if more people That's had seen that true. movie, it's actually smaller than it seemed. A twenty four had other priorities that year. Right? Yeah, A twenty four was I don't real think spoiled. I sobbed for at anything at any TIFF. Like I sobbed at that goddamn movie. I love the Florida Project, and I am probably not in like the top twenty percentile of people who love that movie. Like people fucking adore that movie. It is. I saw it at the TIFF premiere. I was literally across the aisle from Willem Dafoe and Brooklyn Prince. Ooh. I was like, when they came out, I was like, oh, I'm toast. I'm toast. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> to weep my face off. It's fine. Um, all right. Well, well done. Well done on Willem Dafoe. All right. Um, for you, instead of the writing, I actually went to the cast route, the large ensemble. I knew that uh, Diego Luna would be exactly your type of afternoon snack. So I went with his <laughs> yank buddy from Itumama Tambien. For you, I have Gael Garcia Bernal. His yank buddy from Itumama Tambien. And possibly more. We don't know what happened in that cut. Uh, Masterpiece. That, that movie's incredible. cut to them lying in bed, draped over each other at the end. I fucking love that movie so much. Okay, Gael Garcia Bernal. Okay. There is one television. What is oh uh, Mozart in the Jungle? <laughs> That's so chaotic. Golden Globe winner Mozart in the Jungle. <gasps> so, I was like, wait a second, what did Kyle Garcia and Bernal do on television? That's it. That's the one. Okay. Um, is Itumama Tambien one of them? Yes. Okay. Good. It should be. Um. God, he's such a cutie patootie. That one, isn't he? Um. Is Bad Education one of them? No. Should be. His best performance. He is so great. His Should have been a Best Actor nominee. You know, I am a connoisseur of uh, butts in movies, and that is a great one. Definitely a butt in a movie. Definitely a great moment in butt cinema is Gael Garcia Bernal, both in Underpants and out in Mid-Education. Um... Looking like Julia Roberts when he's in drag. That's <laughs> true. It's because the, they both have that lip thing where they don't have the divot in the middle of their upper lip. I'm not the one who made that distinction. I remember Pedro Almodovar saying he looks like Julia Roberts in, <laughs> when he was doing interviews for that movie. That's cool. All right. So not that. I'm trying to think of if there's a lot of like anglicized, Americanized stuff. But like he really hasn't done a ton of you know, crossover stuff, actually. So I'm going to guess, like, Motorcycle Diaries. Yes. Okay. So what, do I have two? I have three. You have three. You have one wrong guess. Uh, Waiting on one more title. Will me not guessing the crime of Father Amaro make Salma Hayek angry, do you think? Do you think she'll, like, sneer somewhere where she is and not know why? Germany, for nowhere in Africa. God, what's the title of that movie? It's not going to be this one. But, like, that title of the movie where it's him and Kate Hudson on the poster sort of, like, smiling. She's, like, very much, like, smizing at the camera. And (laughs) that movie only exists in poster form. I've never, I don't know a single soul who has seen it. Um... And it's only the one voice, so it's not him in um trying to find what this movie Coco. is. I don't know if I can find Just look it. up Gael Garcia Bernal Kate Hudson and, and do an image search and, and it's gotta come up. Okay. 
while I try and wonder what there's a lot of things that you can still guess i know um i'm gonna guess because i think this came up on a recent one for somebody else i'm gonna guess letters to juliet no fuck that is wrong also the movie with him and kate hudson on a poster that is also not a movie it is just a poster is titled a little bit of heaven sure a little bit of heaven okay so i've got two wrong answers though yes your year is 2000 oh so pre oh it's got to be amores peros Amores Peros. There we go. A movie about dog fighting children. That is and um dying. Yeah. That is like early that's like the canary in the coal mine for Inyaritu, right? Where it's just like mm-hmm. um you, you should know what's what kinds of things are coming if you watch Amores Peros. Huge like international uh, hit movie that yes. I did not the, that was another one. Is that another one where the narrative is chopped up into um and like rearranged or am I wrong about that? Yes, it's uh three different stories that all like intersect and it's different timelines. Yeah, I didn't love it. I didn't love the experience of watching it. You could see where there's like, you know, um you know, accomplished stuff happening, but I didn't love yeah. it. That's it. That's it. That's a good that episode. It. That is our episode. If you want more of this had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at this had Oscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Joe, tell our lovely listeners where they can find more of you. Uh, see me on Twitter at Joe Reed, read spelled R-E-I-D. Also find me on Letterboxd, uh, Joe Reed, read spelled the exact same way. And I am also on Twitter. You can find me in Terminal B24 at uh, Chris V. File. That's F-E-I-L. Also on Letterboxd under the same name. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and David Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts. Five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility, so please give us the green stamp and not the red stamp. That's all for this week, and we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. Bye. Losing my timing this late in my career. And where are the clowns? There ought to be clowns. Well, maybe...